Hello, and welcome to Critics Aloud, a six-part podcast celebrating ten years of Critics, the online review site of BSEX, the British Society for 18th Century Studies. I'm Dr Brianna Robertson-Kirkland, your host for this second episode in the series. century was the first great age of criticism, and it was in this spirit that the Critics website was founded in 2011, providing entertaining, informative and provocative reviews of events and media that are of interest to scholars of the 18th century. On the Critics site, concerts, plays, operas, exhibitions, films, broadcasts and online resources are all considered in depth by experts in the field. To celebrate the first decade of Critics, We have invited former reviewers to perform for us their past reviews, all of which have been handpicked by our current staff of specialist sub-editors. We're releasing a new episode every month for the rest of the year, and each will feature a combination of three historic reviews covering either music, media, theatre, or fine and decorative art. In this episode, we'll be hearing Taylor Page Nelson's 2018 review of Mozart's La Finta Simplice, as performed by classical opera at the Queen Elizabeth Hall of London's Southbank Centre. Then, we will hear Andrew Black's 2020 review of a Zoom production of Alfred Ben's The Emperor of the Moon, before closing with Gronya O'Hare's review of Celine Sciamma's 2020 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> First reviewer is Taylan Page Nelson, a second year doctoral student at Rice University, who completed her MA in the 18th Century Studies Programme at King's College London. Her research examines the material and literary representation of non-human embodiment and its broader implications on 18th century ideas of citizenship and belonging. Taylan's work can be found in Routledge's Studies in 18th Century Cultures and Society series this autumn. Here, Taylan performs her review of Mozart's La Finta Simplice as performed by classical opera at the Queen Elizabeth Hall of London's South Bank Centre. The review was published on the 18th of June, 2018. My name is Taylan Nelson. Mozart's first full-length opera, La Finta Simplice, was performed on June 6, 2018 a sunny afternoon at the Queen Elizabeth Hall of London's South Bank Centre. The work was presented by Classical Opera as a part of the Mozart 250 project, an ongoing exploration of Mozart's works and influences begun in 2015. Mozart 250 works chronologically, this year's focus being on the works of 1768, exactly 250 years ago. The performance marks the much-anticipated debut of classical opera conductor Ian Page and the Mozartists at the South Bank Centre. Appropriately timed as well, as the newly renovated Queen Elizabeth Hall offers updated seating and improved acoustics. A rare work to see live, La Finta Semplice, which roughly translates to The False Innocent, was sadly only performed once during Mozart's lifetime and received little attention until 1983, when it was recorded in its entirety for the first time by Austrian conductor Leopold Hager. 
At the age of 12, Mozart began composing his first opera at the request of Emperor Joseph II. He successfully composed the piece, however, staging the performance would prove difficult as Viennese impresario Giuseppe Affligio had legal control over the opera houses in Vienna. According to the evening's program, Affligio began a rumor that Wolfgang's father Leopold was behind the compositions. Consequently, the singers were incited, the orchestra was stirred up, and everything was done to stop the performance of the opera. In this day and age, it is unthinkable to question the originality and genius of Mozart's compositions. However, at the time, the boy prodigy garnered awe and jealousy in equal measures. If audience members were expecting a reserved performance, this rendition of Mozart's first opera will have disappointed. La Finta Semplice is first and foremost an opera buffa, or funny opera. Based on a text by Carlo Galdoni, it features 26 numbers over three acts and traces the antics of seven characters who manage to fall in love, dupe each other, and marry within a span of 24 hours. La Finta is lively with moments of slapstick humor, drunken tirades, pantomime, runaway brides, and recognizable 18th century trope figures. That is not to say, however, that the acting was overdone or too exaggerated. On the contrary, the performers built their emotions appropriately throughout the evening in a believable and congruous manner. The opera opens on an elegant, semi-staged set, with the Mozartists situated upstage. The action takes place in Cremona, northern Italy, and features two sets of lovers. Giacinta, played by mezzo-soprano Sophie Renert, paired with the Hungarian Captain Fracasso, played by tenor Thomas Elwin, followed by his sergeant Simone, played by Bozidar Smiljanic, paired with Giantita's maid Ninetta, played by soprano Chiara Scarath. The true stars of both the text and the performance were brothers Don Cassandro, played by Lucas Jacobski, bass, and Don Polidoro, played by Alessandro Fisher, tenor. Both brothers vie for the heart of Fracasso's sister, Baronessa Rosina, played by the incomparable soprano Rigula Muleman. Rosina acts the part of the false innocent as she tricks the Dons into falling in love with her through a well-hatched plan that claims Ninetta and Giacinta fled with the family fortunes. Rosina forces the brothers to promise that their sister and maid must be allowed to marry whomever finds them first, respectively Captain Fracasso and Simone. Jakubski's body and voice commanded attention, first as he acted the part of an aggressive misogynist, and then later as the passionate, even silly bachelor. His costume of muted red satin breeches, white stockings, and bright gold vest showed his character's high status in society, while the singer's towering height and bald head contributed to his commanding presence on the stage. The costume lends itself to the lovelorn role he later assumes and marks the transition from attitudes such as aria number no. four, Nanci al mondo, alcio che which roughly translates to there's nothing in the world but women, as he ironically bans women from his household, to aria number no. eight, Elle vuole adotore, which sees his enchanted attempts to describe his emotions for Rosina as the blop, blop beating of his blood. Without a doubt, Jakubski presents the most comedic acting in the opera as he memorably breaks the wall between singer and orchestra to hide at Rosina's bidding among the violinists or humorously nick a bow to use in a duel between himself and Fracasso. Though the tricks feel contemporary, they do not dissolve the dignity of the opera's artistry. In fact, these moments parallel the more subtle interactions between the orchestra and the actors, as each displayed a rapt attention and reciprocity. In terms of musical aptitude, Muleman's ex expertise was obvious from aria number no. 9, Sentileco Ovetigiri, or 
Hear the echo where you wander, as an orange glow of light lowered over Rosina's gold dress and diamond necklace. Her sincere and plaintive tone expressed her desire to choose a lover who would treat her right, the echo that mimics the speaker. The incorporation of colored lighting was simple, yet added depth to the emotional expression of the music. Additionally, the music was performed on 18th century accurate instruments, such as the harpist chord, which added to the atmospheric immersion of the senses. English surtitles were offered on a screen above the stage. At first I was concerned this would distract from the singers, but found the translations were invaluable in deepening my appreciation for an already superb and entertaining performance. Although it has been suggested that the plot is rather wooden compared to Cosi Fantute or Figaro, it has to be remembered that even at 12, Mozart possessed a musical maturity that imbued the characters with warmth and lively compassion. The program gives an example of this, stating, Polidoro's serenade in Act Two puts one in mind of the six-year-old Wolfgang proposing marriage to Marie Antoinette, the future queen of France. It is precisely Mozart's childish and endearing quality, matched with a wisdom far beyond his years, that expresses itself in La Finta Semplice. Our next reviewer is Andrew Black, Associate Professor of English and Philosophy at Murray State University in Western Kentucky. His work focuses on the history of rhetoric, with particular recent interests in the Methodist Church and 17th and 18th century women poets. However, he is also proud to have recently published two articles on the pop artist Kesha. Here, Andrew performs his review of R18 Collective's Zoom production of Alfred Benz' The Emperor of the Moon, first published on the 9th of December 2020. Afra Bain's 1687 play, The Emperor of the Moon, is something of a curio, a satire of a contemporary scientific culture gone to seed. It depends on pyrotechnics and props, such as a quote-unquote telescope 20 or more foot long, and a defiantly absurd lack of realism to show the goings-on in the chaotic house of a virtuoso who hopes to spy on the secret closet of Moon Men. And Bain's corpus, the play, is something of an outlier alongside more urbane cosmopolitan comedies such as The Dutch Lover and The Rover. However, the remarkable recent digital production by Misty Anderson and a marvelous group of performers not only energizes and makes relevant this gonzo comedy, but also uses an otherwise perfunctory technology to bring to life its crucial themes about knowledge, power, and privacy. And Anderson, a professor focusing on 17th and 18th century literature at the University of Tennessee, may have provided the scholarly impulse and understanding behind the production, but actors Charles Pasternak and Charlotte Munson were equal partners, with Munson's father Richard providing the music, and the collaborative energy of the actors having great fun with Bain's scenario was evident in every interaction. Al Coppola, who attended the play, 
screenplay and answered questions during its intermission, incisively explained that Bain's quote-unquote elaborate farce summons the audience's blank wonder. Bain's play was staged for a culture fascinated by the progress of experimental philosophy, the foundation of our modern science. After Charles II approved the Charter of the Royal Society in 1661, England joined and even took the forefront of an exciting international culture of prolific scientific advancement and discovery. But to an outsider like Bain, since no women would join the Royal Society until 1945, the comic stage and page allowed cynical observers to expose the men who claimed they were solving all the world's problems behind closed doors. The epithet, virtuoso, came to be used to describe boffins who were dissecting frogs and accidentally setting chemical fires in their home laboratories. By 1687, the Stuart monarchy had transitioned following the death of the flamboyant Charles to his Catholic brother James, and almost every institution seemed rife for the most savage satire. Bain's Tory politics should have aligned her to her monarch, but the mechanics of the glorious revolution in the year to follow would divide king and countrymen and lead to James's ouster. It's fitting, then, that Bain's play is about deluded authority thwarted. Bain invites us into the house of Dr. Baliardo, whose telescopic obsession leads him to neglect his love-struck charges, daughter Alara and niece Bellamonte. Assisted unably by servant Scaramouche, he invites her disguised lovers into the house to assist with his experience. Don Cynthia and Charmante fool him into believing in a world on the moon simply by holding a glass with various images in front of the telescope's mouth. Through this visual manipulation, the Dons convince Baliardio to allow a dual marriage as they further pose as the Emperor of the Moon and the King of Thunderland. The play is broad, and the characters clumsily and loudly navigate through various schemes and machinations, culminating in an operatic pageant of song and dance as the fake celestial princes marry the earthbound maidens, interrupted at the end by doofus assistants Scaramouche and Harlequin, dueling for the hand of a servant girl. Dr. Baliardo is a terrible virtuoso. But the virtuosity of this cleverly staged production through Zoom was nothing short of brilliant. While some characters happened to be quarantined in the same location, Harlequin always get glancing over the shoulder of Scaramouche in the same window, for instance, the rest were giving the dazzling illusion that all of these distant actors were mucking about in the same location. At other points, a costume character would suddenly appear, the emerging window playing along with the new guys. Props were used to remind us of our current homebound state, rather than the spectacular. At one point, a butter knife subbed appropriately for a sword. And video clips and images brought virtual laughter. My favorite involved the nymph, a quote-unquote beauty young and angel-like, played by the shirtless Ryan Gosling Hey Girl Mem. 
it was all the more impressive, especially for those of us who have been using Zoom to awkwardly manage classroom conversations or department meetings with those little stacked picture windows that may or may not represent an active observer in a distant location. Baliardo himself is interested in a distant location, and Anderson and the cast use Zoom to imagine the virtual and the fantastical. Even in this ridiculous scenario, Bain is interested in surveillance and voyeurism, and the way we imagine and mystify sovereign power. That's what Baliardo sees through his telescope, but the real power, in this case the gullible doctor, is arbitrary and ridiculous, even as it controls and orders orders a surrounding world based on such authorized but erroneous knowledge and false reports. Sound familiar, 2020? This is a play about watching and observing and interpreting and the mess that comes from that. So instead of fixing our gaze on static stagecraft, we see through the characters' eyes as they try to gain a true perspective. It is, of course, always fake. What can we know and how can we know it? For Bain, science wasn't the answer. And by framing the play's interactions as a series of constantly shifting first-person perspectives, this performance allows us to revel in the confusion. Here, Baliardo's gender is flipped. No longer father and uncle, now mother and aunt. She is played by the esteemed Carol Mayo Jenkins, fully embodying the doctor's daffy authority and pretense to erudition and lines like, The moon! I am transported, overjoyed, and ecstatic. It is subversive to imagine contemporary women even having the opportunity to abuse such power. A, a fantasy of female authority allowed to run amok. And Jenkins would make a wonderful lady wish for it from William Congreve's later The Way of the World. As Bain was perhaps the period's greatest chronicle and critic of romantic desire, Jenkins and all the actors long and sigh lovingly when imagining seemingly impossible alternate realities, amorous or astronomical. Considering that the play features a character named Scaramouche, it's appropriate that this staging ends with dance to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, though not an astute critic of dance. This critic cannot confirm that Scaramouche did the Fandango. The anachronisms were part of the fun, I hope here I have portrayed the kinetic energy and invention of this staging. Highlights included Charles Pasternak's Harlequin and his madly furling eyebrows, the lovely singing of Charlotte Munson and Brittany Periazzoli, the confident and bemused narration of Tyler Nye, and the changing identities of con artist Chauncey Thomas and Gerald Dewey, who bluster delightfully as perhaps the silliest aliens ever imagined. Watching the play live allowed the audience to join in for virtual conversations and celebrations using the chat function, a welcome reprieve from the isolation of the pandemic through this joyous event. I should note that the actors signed on to this performance with no promise of payment, but the generosity and appreciation of the audience allowed each performer to take home a well-deserved sum of money. That means Anderson and her crew might be more likely to do more performances in the future. Afra Bain's prologue to the play opens cattily. She writes, Long and at the vast expense, 
the industrious stage has strove to please a dull, ungrateful age. However, we'd all be grateful to see this group take on another play, and in Bane's words again, thunder and heroic strain. Our final reviewer is our very own Gronya O'Hare, media editor for B6 Critics. Gronya is currently a PhD candidate at Newcastle University. Her research focuses on representations of Methodist women in memoir and satire of the 18th century. Here, Gronya performs the review of Celine Sciamma's 2020 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The review was published on the 30th of March, 2020. <laughs> In solitude, I felt the liberty you spoke of, but I also felt your absence. Set predominantly on a remote island in Brittany towards the end of the 18th century, Céline Siamat's Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a delicate rendering of intimacy forged in isolation. Praised by critics as a bewitching celebration of the female gaze, the film tells the story of Marianne, Noemi Merlon, an artist commissioned to paint Eloise, Adèle Inel and the intense relationship that develops between the two women during their time on the island together. At the beginning of the story, Eloise has recently left a convent and been betrothed to a Milanese nobleman never seen on screen. Reluctant to surrender to the engagement, Eloise refuses to pose for a portrait intended for her intended. Marianne is charged with the task of painting Eloise in secret, masquerading as a walking companion while she makes covert observations and works in the portrait by night. For Eloise, the time spent in a sparsely furnished house on an isolated island is pervaded with an atmosphere of liberation rather than one of stifling claustrophobia, a brief respite of freedom between the cloisters and the marriage bed. Marianne learns from the housemaid Sophie, Luana Bajrami, that the nameless Italian was previously contracted to Eloise's sister, who took her own life by jumping from an island clifftop. During Marianne's first encounter out walking with Eloise, Eloise breaks into a sudden sprint towards the cliff edge, stopping short just before she runs out of land. I've dreamt of that for years, are her first words to Marianne. Dying, Marianne asks. Running, says Eloise. Marianne and Eloise's romance flourishes with the same untethered abandon. Siama is stewing the worn tropes of taboo, secrecy and shame common to representations of lesbian relationships on screen. The chemistry between Anel and Merlon transcends every pyrotechnic platitude, slow burning, smouldering, sizzling, that might be used to describe it. The film invites the viewer not to be an omniscient voyeur observing Marianne and Eloise from an audience perspective, but rather to see each woman through the eyes of the other, the passion between them unmuted, rather intensified, by the elegance and subtlety with which it is conveyed. The fact that Eloise's husband-to-be is never named or seen sets the fact of her marriage at a safe, if temporary, distance, giving Eloise and Marianne the freedom to acknowledge and explore their love during their time together. Men in the film largely exist off-screen, if they are referenced at all. When Sophie shares with Marianne, for instance, that she has not had a period in several months, The only question Marianne has for her is, do you want a child? She makes no inquiries as to the man who made Sophie pregnant. The focus instead remaining on Sophie's agency and intentions, Marianne and Eloise's support, and the developing comradeship between the three of them. Critical of Marianne's first portrait attempt when it is revealed, Eloise agrees to pose for her. The painting becomes a collaborative endeavour infused with the evolving romantic and sexual intimacy between the two women. Marianne casts off the rules, conventions, ideas that restricted her first effort, and left it lacking in truth and presence. 
Marianne's art thrives with Eloise's encouragement, notably in her candlelit rendering of Sophie's abortion, Sophie and Eloise both obliging models recreating the tableau. In the final scenes of the film, we see Marianne at an art gallery, a gentleman commenting on the unusual depiction of Orpheus in one of the paintings. Marianne reveals herself to be the artist, having submitted the painting under her father's name. Set to take over her father's business, Marianne has not the same pressure to marry as Eloise. As an artist, however, she is bound by convention, something from which, in her isolation with Eloise, she is briefly liberated. To use flamboyant superlatives to describe Portrait of a Lady on Fire seems almost unbefitting given how beautifully and quietly understated it is. Despite the minimalism of the locations, the costumes, the incidental music and script, the film pulses with a richness and luster that period dramas with more opulent aesthetic and garrulous dialogue can often fail to achieve. Its final frames of Eloise at a performance of Summer from Vivaldi's Four Seasons, observed from a distance by Marianne for the last time some years later, perfectly encompass the ardour, the heartache, the breathless longing, sheer joy that the film evokes. A lacework of exquisitely subtle yet blistering passion, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is less an ephemeral flame and more a firebrand on the soul, an impression left long after the credits have rolled. Thank you very much for listening to this instalment of Critics Aloud. If you'd like to read the reviews featured here in their original formats, or indeed explore more reviews by the same author, or any of our reviews, you can find them all at our website, bsex.org.uk forward slash critics reviews. And remember, at bsex, we spell critics with a K, so it's C-R-I-T-I-C-K-S. If you'd like to write to us, or you have a suggestion for something you'd like us to review, please do get in touch with one of our sub-editors. Our sub-editors are Granier O'Hare for Media... So that includes film, TV, podcasts and so on. Brianna Robertson-Kirkland for music. Miriam Al-Jamil for fine and decorative art. And Katie Ask for theatre. You can contact any of us at any time via the B6 Critics website and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you're not already a member of B6 but are interested in finding out more about joining our society, visit bsex.org.uk. Membership includes a subscription to our society's quarterly journal, the highly regarded, world-renowned Journal for 18th Century Studies, as well as an invitation to our annual conference and access to a wide range of events, funding and support for 18th century scholars at every career level. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you listen to this podcast or by tweeting us at at bsex. This episode of Critics Aloud was edited and produced by Adam James Smith in association with the British Society for 18th Century Studies. It was hosted by Brianna Robertson-Kirkland. Join us again in a month's time, but for now, goodbye. (laughs) 